Welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast, the podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and I have finally tracked him down. I finally got him back. He's been the hardest man in the world to catch up with. Scott Williams, thank you for coming in again today. Sorry, been so hard to catch up, mate. Thanks for having me back. It has been impossible. The, like, the whole idea of the show was to have you on every second week and you just, you've been too busy. Every second year, mate, might have to suffice. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Well, mate, let's throw the first question to you that I've been asking everybody that's been on the show the last few weeks. How do you be, how have you coped with COVID lockdowns? Obviously, we're back open again now, but how have you mm. coped with COVID lockdowns? Uh, look, I was very, I was one of the fortunate ones uh, in terms of the business that I run, which is, I guess, similar to some of the coaches out there because I'm, I'm an allied health practitioner, got my own little clinic most of which had to be locked down for a decent portion of time. Um, so, you know, we kind of kept the clients there going with some loading, posting some videos and, you know, free stuff for them to, to keep them interested really. Um, but, you know, to, to be honest, because I was trying to complete my PhD and, you know, we had obviously had the kids at home and they needed to be homeschooled and, um, you know, I may have overcoached them at times, so, <laughs> so it was quite a time-consuming, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people can identify with. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I just took it. I mean, obviously, this was our sixth time, so we're getting quite good at it down here in Victoria. But, um, you know, I kind of already knew what the silver lining was for me and for our family, so you know, I take the good with the bad. In the end, it was a bit, look, it was a bit boring, um, so I was ready, ready for life to <laughs> restart, so... How do you cope with two at home? It's bad enough with one. I've only got one. You've got two, and they're both they're, they're similar age. Similar age. Yeah, it's not like we can pass one off as the babysitter tutor. Um, <laughs> so yeah, look, they took it in turns for being the good child and and, and the devil. <laughs> so it, it was almost like you know, if one of them was struggling a bit mentally, you know, because they didn't enjoy the work they were doing or whatever, which is typically what it was, um, and they don't have their friends around them that they can kind of. You know, the herd sort of, I think when they're in a classroom situation, and maybe it's just similar to coaching groups, they kind of move as a herd, you know. So as long as you get a few of them going in the right direction, the rest will kind of follow. Whereas at home, you know, if they decide they're not enjoying their maths or whatever they're doing, um, you know, we've got to kind of get in there and crack the whip a little bit. So, yeah, it, I guess a third of the time it was great and a third of the time one of them would take turns. But, it, look, it got better as it went along. It's Interesting with the kids, I know with, with mine, he found that he didn't get that connection with his mates because, again, being an only child as well, he's home by himself. So mm. he really started to get a bit upset because he couldn't see his friends. He just couldn't spend mm. time with his mates. So challenging times. Yeah, and the other thing too, of course, is that and, – and look, this is the world we live in, but a lot of them will sort of socialise as they're gaming or, you know, playing playing – things on the computer, which meant that after sitting at a, sitting down at a desk watching a screen all day, you know, then school finishes, they want to socialise with their friends. So it's another two hours of screen time. So for me, um, you know, this, the sedentary activities and just so much time with eyeballs on screens was, you know, something we just had to basically just let happen, I guess, in the end, because they needed to talk to their friends. But um, it's just far from ideal. Yeah, it was hard, and we we you know, it's, we were certainly the same. We certainly found ourselves as parents giving him more time on the PlayStation just so we could actually talk to his mates. Yeah, um, yeah. Cool. But then there were certain times where we got him out and said, "Come on, let's get the football, let's go to the park and kick the footy around and do some do some things like that." So yeah, it was cool. Yep, same. <laughs> 
a little offset with him. I don't know whether your girls are the same because yours are pretty active. Mine, he's hanging to get back Should into his, <laughs> with, with his sport, which he's finally got back into. But he's been getting sore at training. So, ah, yeah. yes. Because he hadn't trained for so long. He came back from his first basketball session. He said, my arms are sore, Dad. I said, well, that's because you haven't trained for a while. Yeah, it is It is funny. I mean, like I remember as a kid, uh, you know, for me it was always bowling and cricket. Um, the first couple of weeks of, of uh, you know, in sort of September before the season would start and you haven't bowled for six months. I was always really sore. Even as a 10-year-old, I can, I can remember that thinking what's wrong with me <laughs> so yeah, it's not something that kids normally have to um deal with but um yeah it just shows that we all haven't moved enough and time to get moving again for sure all of us and prior to getting into what i want to talk about today i'm going to throw some advice i want some advice from your expertise um as you may have been aware i did the walk for yeah, I saw that. well done, mate. Very good. Um, and did 150 k's across the month of October, and nearly Very killed nice. me. Nearly so killed that's me. Five k's a day, but I'm guessing you had some days off and walked a bit further on other days. It was only 20, 25 days. I went from the first till the twenty fifth, so it was about six or seven k's a day. Six or seven k a day. Yeah, it was what, we, yeah. what I tried to aim for, and that was um, it was funny because I started off slowly and nearly mm. killed me. And was going slow, pushing through, pushing through, and then I had a couple of days where it felt really good. And then okay, I've got through that first barrier. And you had um, to make up for the fact that you'd maybe done a few shorter walks yep. as you were building up. So you're thinking now's the time to step on the on the so pedal. I'll, I'll go a bit harder. And man, oh man, the <laughs> shin splints was mm. what I ended up with. Um, just painful shins where I just literally couldn't walk. It was just um, awful. Yes, yes. No, it's a common thing. And, and it, like I've literally, I've just had a client just this afternoon and um, and they're about to head overseas for a couple of months for the first time in a long time. They're going to visit an elderly parent. And um, and so they wanted some an exercise program and and she wants to do it every day. And so, of course, I don't want to give her a program that she's going to do every day because I would never get anyone to do the same movements day after day after day after day after day. So I gave her two programs. So I, you know, quickly picked six exercises, but I broke them into two groups of three. And this is always the way to go. And this is this is the challenge with um, there's a lot. The other really common thing I get is, um, you know, what do you think of this, Scott? It's a it's a thirty day push up challenge or a thirty day squat challenge. And the push up one, you end up trying to do a hundred push ups on the last day. So you'll do, I don't know, it's like five and then ten, and it builds up, right? And, and I say, look, I'm not going to say don't do it, but you would never design anything like that, ever. It'd be like saying to someone, hit, you know, go hit 50 drivers a day every single day. It's going to cause a problem. Um, so, you know, my plan for you would have been to do some longer walks, but to have a day off would, would have been to plan those day offs. But it was tricky because you had to build up and, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where you have to walk, you know, 30 kilometres on the last day <laughs> to get it ticked off. So, but, you know, it's that um, it's just having that sort of being able to break it up a bit and, you know, it's obviously it was a great cause that you did it for. And I think the whole point is to have a challenge, isn't it, that, that you have to work through something. If, if you have to work, work through a minor injury, uh, you know, that's part of it. So I'm not anti any of that stuff ever. It's just that. It, it kind of breaks a few rules for our program prescription. It, it, it was the most frustrating thing because it didn't hurt except when I walked. So you, yeah. can, you can sit down, you can stand, there's no pain whatsoever, 
as soon as you start to step out on a walk, that's the pain is just un, unbearable. It's, just, it's essentially it was, an RSI, you know. It's an RSI. Yeah. You're doing the same movement over and over again, so it's going to be that movement that's a problem. Um, so, but you know, oh well. You've got to break a few eggs to make a cake. <laughs> well, I've, I've gone through it too, and I've also invested in some uh, uh, some, some supportive shoes, which has certainly yes. helped as well. So, yeah, look, you could have done that, and you could have done a little bit of recovery work after your walks, and that, and it, interesting that when you are feeling great, that's the time you need this stuff the most because you think you got it nailed, and it's it's nearly always the case that that went that's. When you're performing at your highest is almost when you're at your closest to injury. It's bizarre, but it's the way it is. I just couldn't get over it because I thought I'd, I'd push through the hardness early on. I thought, okay, I've, yeah. I've gone gone nice and slowly to ease into it and worked my way up. And I did that for four, five, six days. And I was doing a couple of walks a day trying to build it up. And, mm. okay, I've got through the hard stuff and now it's fine. And then, bang, it hit me. So, so what it really comes down to is that all the – and we've had this conversation before, but you've got, depending on how you divide it up, you've got 14 different systems in the body – and they all recover at different rates. And so your muscle tissue, see, with the shin splints, it's often the periosteum or the it's the connective tissue between the muscle and the bone. Now, that doesn't recover as quickly as the, as the muscle does. So, so the, you know, you end up getting this inflammation in the connective tissue, which is your common sort of RSI. It's often within the tendon or the, the fascia or the periosteum. So, you know... And you don't know until it's sore. And once it's sore, it takes a little while to go because it doesn't recover as quick. Yeah, so anyway, these are the challenges that we sort of face when we're training people on a regular and basis. And I'm 46 years old as well. This doesn't help <laughs> yeah. me as much either. Yeah, no, I, I hear I can't push quite as hard as I used to when I was a bit younger. So that was, yeah. that was the other the other, the other issue there. So, mate, you said you were spending some time on your PhD. So we've spoken mm. about your PhD research in the past. Give me an update. Where's it at? Yeah, so look, uh, not that anyone's particularly interested in the process of the thesis and, and um, how, it all, how you come about to do your PhD. I don't think that's particularly interesting unless you're looking to do it yourself. But so, um, but yeah, I submitted my my thesis. So the main output of a of a typical PhD is a thesis. So uh, I got it down to about seventy four thousand words, eight chapters, and um, submitted that. And now it's with the examiners, uh, a couple of sports science academics from the UK, uh, who are sitting with it now. Hopefully, they don't mind it, um, and then they're going to give me some probably some direct feedback in about two weeks' time. And then I need to address that feedback. Hopefully, uh, it's okay, and then it, it basically goes in, and then my PhD is completed. And at some point, they'll let me put either doctor before my name or PhD at the end of my name. It's the way it's notated normally. Um, that's so. That's that's from a mechanical point of view. That's where, where I'm at with that. That's but obviously, I, I really did mine because I was interested in the content. So, so. talk talk me through some of the content. And and um, and things you came to at the end. So I'll, obviously, it's going to be published once it gets out there. But talk me through some of the conclusions you came up with. Yeah, so it was it was broken into into four main studies. So I did two large lit reviews, literature reviews. Um, one of which was just a really all encompassing, quite a long chapter where I looked into all the different details of anything that you could test with a golfer to better understand their performance, better know what to test, better know what to train. Um, so, so that covered biomechanics, uh, 
it covered ground reaction forces, uh, all the physical tests, all the on-course tests, um, so on-course stats. So strokes gained is a bit of a, a newer one, but there's all the traditional um, you know, you can you can quantify the performance of a golfer with their position in the field, their world ranking, prize money. There's so many different ways that you can do it. National ranking, international amateur ranking. Um, so, so I basically collected up all of that in a broad net to know what it is that we need to assess when we're – because as you can probably imagine, once you know all that, then you've got – you can form KPIs around the performance of a golfer which is great for the individual or for the programs. And then we just water that down or or um, make it more concentrated depending on how serious the player is and the level that they're at. Um, so that's sort of really what where I wanted to get to from there. And then I quantified the amount of research that had been done in each of those areas. And I broke that down by cohort. So male, female golfers, not surprisingly, there's been a lot more done on male golfers around about it's sort of an 80-20 split almost. Um, and then I broke the golfers into four different handicap groupings. So elite, so basically scratch or better. Uh, low handicap, which was 0.5 to 7.5. Mid handicap, 7.5 to 17.5. And high handicap is basically 17.5, which is basically essentially 18 and over. Um which apologies if you're an 18 handicapper and I've just called you a high handicapper. <laughs> That's just the way the uh, it's the way it had been done in the research. Actually, I came to a consensus across all the different studies as to what those handicap ranges were. And so then I basically was able to break it down by cohorts and work out that uh, there's been a lot done on low handicap male golfers, but not a lot done on high handicap male golfers. Um, and I also broke it down by age. So three different age categories. So under 18, juniors, 18 to 49, which is kind of your, your I guess, your peak playing years. So you've got three years left, Brent. And, <laughs> and, and then and then your older golfers. And so the, what I found was quite a mismatch between, so the as you would appreciate, knowing golf as you do, most participants in golf are older and higher handicap. And most of the research has not been done on them. What do you think that is? Um, I guess everyone wants the, the cool stuff, which is, you know, the high-end performance. And if you can take a low handicap golfer, so an aspiring elite to elite levels, you know, I guess that everyone wants to know about that. And and a lot of the uh, – it's convenient sampling as well because you've got a lot of the college programs, a lot of the development programs. The players are there. They're already part of a program. They're a great sample to work with. Whereas if you're going to go and recruit a bunch of players from, from club golf, look, you can do it, but you don't always have them there at the same time as you'd be aware with golf clubs. You know, you kind of got four people coming in and, you know, that you might meet up with, you know, three or four groups of four afterwards, but then they go. So they're quite a bit of a fragmented sample to work with. So they, they are harder to, to kind of wrangle. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's also just that, did we know that that was the case? So that's what I've tried to do with that second study, that second uh, lit review, is to really identify where the needs are and what we know and what we don't know. So how well informed are we to, to, to coach and train these different cohorts of, of players? And, and if it comes down to the fact that with, um, say, with elite female golfers, not a lot has been done on them, so we have to borrow from the male data. But we know they're not the same. There are differences. 
Yeah. You know, so it's a sure. problem. It is. Yeah. Well, again, they're they're, they're going to be physically different, aren't they? There's going to be the way they move the club, the way they do anything is going to be different. Yep. Yep. It seems <laughs> seems strange that they they haven't covered that or gone towards that area. Yeah, so it is an issue and quite often, you know, it'll be a college program and, and there might be like, say, 15 male golfers and four females and they'll just chuck them in, you know. So And, and that what that then does is that it tends to really um, emphasise the male traits. So there's a little bit of con- there's some confounding. It's probably the most common confounding factor in the golf research is combining male and female golfers and it's something that I've been quite, quite hard on in my thesis. I've, I've gone quite firm on that point it shouldn't be done that way we really do need to separate them out because it it, it it skews the data for our male players and it tells us nothing for our female players you know yeah. so so that that was kind of the the main takeaways there and then what I did was I, I then set about forming a continuum which is one of the big sort of outputs of my my research which is I've called it the physical golf performance continuum where we've got physical, all the physical traits sort of on the far left-hand side of the continuum, if you like, and golf performance on course in competition on the right-hand side. And I've got five stages in between. Look, it could have been eight. It could have been 10. I've settled on five. Um, And, you know, having done that and knowing what all the tests are that we can use for those five different stages of the continuum – we can then um, we can then monitor the effective parts of our programming. You know, where's the breakdown, for example? So I like to do it with a player in reverse order. So so the five stages are physical. Stage two is technical body measurements. So how the body itself moves and ground reaction. Step stage three is the club and the ball. Okay, so think hitting bay, if you like. Stage four is skills testing. So get them to go out there and mimic competition with skills tests. And then stage five is obviously on the course in competition. And so I like to look at it. The reason I I felt sort of compelled to do that is because otherwise it's kind of like, let's say a player's performance drops. As coaches and practitioners, we all have this intuitive urge to, to, to kind of work it. Well, I think it could be this or I think it could be that. So I like to kind of create a bit of a structure for, say, the multidisciplinary team, right? So if you did have a team of practitioners that you could use, you, you know, you've got a physio that you work with or a trainer and you as the coach, uh, you might get a biomechanist in. And I'm just describing right there our, our PGA program, for example, and a lot of the colleges would be the same. So the on-course performance of a player drops. Where do we go next? So that's stage five. Stage five, there's a red light, right, or an amber light. We've got an alarm, an alert's been set off. Something's dropped. It'd be great to know which part of their game had dropped. It'd be great to know if it was their approach shot or whether it was their short game. Or Let's just say it's their approach iron play, right? Let's just say we know that. Then we don't go straight down to stage two where we're looking at all their biomechanics. We're going to work back through the process in an ideal world. We're going to go, okay, so let's go back to their baseline testing of their approach iron play, which we might have collected, say, a few times a year. Has that dropped off? So they redo their tests. No, it hasn't. 
So in their skills testing, let's say their approach iron play is fine. What do you think it might be? Maybe it's between the ears. Okay. But let's say their skills testing has dropped off. Okay. Why is that? Then we might go back and have a look at the club and the ball and what's actually going on with their consistency or their their ball striking or all of a sudden they've picked up a nasty block or whatever it might be. And then... We might be, you might be able to optimize that. And this, I'm putting myself in the coach's position now. You, you, know, might, you might be able to fix that quickly. Or maybe you can't. Now you might go back to the body and, and see what's actually, how it's moving and what's going on. And then if you can't fix that quickly, maybe it's the body. We go back to the body. So it's a way to kind of quickly diagnose what the best fix is for that player rather than just sort of error. And look, I've been guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. We've all got our little pet faves, our pet fixes that, that oh, this works most of the time. And there's nothing wrong with trying those, but I think it's a great, it's a great sort of framework for a team, but also for a player to kind of understand themselves in their own game. Having a tool to be able to go through any problems step by step in a process as opposed to relying on instinct, which is what yes. coaches have done forever in a day, um, which can work, but it can also miss. So hmm. having a framework where you've got tests essentially where you can, okay, I've got a problem here. I need to go through this step by step process, which is what all scientists do, don't they? They have, they have a problem and they go through step by step process to find out what the root cause of that problem is and medicine exactly and then that's that's exactly where i was headed it's you don't Mm. um yeah if someone comes with a problem you don't just guess okay he's he's hurting me inside i'm going to get a scan and find out why he's hurting inside yeah rather than oh mrs jones was in last month with a similar complaint she said similar things to you i'll just give you mrs jones's treatment Mm, that no. doesn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> now nice. the consequences may be a bit more dire in medicine than they are with the golf course, but it can feel pretty bad out there sometimes <laughs> when it's not working. I've heard heard that plenty of times through my career. We're not working in life and death situations on as golf coaches, but <laughs> um, for some golfers, it might be mm. pretty pretty serious for them out there, and especially well, if, it's, it's, if it's if it's two players. Yeah, it's their, it's their career for sure. And, and look, you know, from a from a duty of care point of view as well, there's been many a club golfer that's gone out and hacked away and hacked away and hacked away and tried to fix it with reps and tried to fix it with faulty mechanics or whatever. So so working on the wrong problem is is really not a good thing for anyone. Um, it's definitely not enjoyable because it doesn't work. It's very frustrating. So I, I, you know, I like to think that it's a, a framework that can be used at all level of levels of the game, but we just reduce the testing down to the simplest, you know, uh, lowest reduced amount that we can to make it more feasible for all situations. That that makes sense. It's it's interesting you said because it's the most common problem is okay, someone's struggling with their golf game. Let's go and hit some golf balls and fix it through repetition and. That could work, but it can give you a false sense sometimes as well. If you're going out and working on your golf swing technique and it gets better mm. through just hitting so many golf balls, but the problem is actually a psych issue or a physical issue, then 
you're yeah. probably not fixing the root cause and it's going to come back again. So, And I think there's a place for it when, like, like I'm my game is super rusty. I've come off a couple of knee surgeries during lockdown, which I managed to squeeze in. That's another thing I oh, did in lockdown. <laughs> um, so, so I'm going to need to hit balls just to remember how to do it and to, you know, give my nervous system a chance to learn. So people have had lay, layoffs or haven't been playing much. There's always a, a time for practice and repetition. But, but, you know, in terms of, you know, Geez, they're playing well recently, but now they're not. Why? That that's where the framework really kind of kicks in, which is really cool. So mm. you, you said it's going to be obviously it'll be the full on version for the the tour player out there trying to make a make it a career, yep. and then scale down types of it when it comes to the yeah. So cultures. so continuum light, if you like L I T E. Okay. That's the way we 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 do it these days. So. Yeah, so so then what I needed to do was was like okay, I, I needed to, you know, so so my my next study was to take my 122 golfers, which I probably mentioned in a, in previous podcasts, and test them on all of these things. So I, I collected, so there was 25 different tests that I used spread across that continuum in my study, um, and that output about 165 different measures, roughly half physical, half technical. Um, but that required, we typically would run about 15 golfers through two and a half hours with six testers and a full biomechanics lab, which took us about an hour and a half to set up and about an hour to pack up. And <laughs> some of those days were some of the worst days of my life. So <laughs> they... We, we had one day where we ran five two-and-a-half-hour test sessions within a day. So I was up at, uh, I think, 3.30 in the morning and I got home to bed at about 1, 1 a.m. Wow. So they're just big, huge days and it was stuff that I was, you know, willing to do. But, you know, in the back of my mind, even as I was doing it, I'm thinking, how do we make this practical for the real world? You know, how do we – I don't want to have to do this again, you know, with my squad. It's too much. Um, so I deliberately overcooked it by putting all these tests in so that we could then whittle it down and select the best tests. It's probably simpler to go that way, I would have thought, to have it too complicated to start with and then come backwards and to try and have something set up and then go, oh, shit, I have to scale this up, and then it becomes yeah. too hard. Well, then you have to redo it because you don't know what you missed. Yeah. Yeah, so, so we had to just bite the bullet there. Um, so I've been able to basically, even for my uh, my comprehensive testing battery, we've got that down to 12 tests now. Okay. So we've chopped it in half. It can be run with two testers. So basically a, a physical person and a golf coach. Um, and, you know, if you wanted to ramp it up, you, can, you could give them their own skills tests, which they could go out and do themselves. And so, you know, we've kind of created a, a, a good sort of, I guess, elite performance test battery. Um, which which covers the whole continuum. And the other good thing, which I didn't mention before, is it's obviously great for the ind individual golfer, but it's great for the program overall because you can measure the success of the different parts of your program, not to point the finger, but but to actually see, you know, where are we successful and where do we need to, to make improvements? And, um, you know, for example, if the physical wasn't improving so much, maybe they need, maybe they need an extra session a week before or maybe they need more... Yeah, or, or fire them. That's maybe a last resort, but maybe they need more home programming. Maybe they need more whatever it might be, but at least you can quickly and easily measure it by aggregating those individuals as group data. Well, again, so, it, 
it just keeps coming back to that that key point that we can actually assess what's going on instead of guessing, which is what we've done for so long. And um, golf is finally starting to take that on board. I think is we don't have to guess anymore. Um, yep. We can actually actually check what's what's really happening and and come at it from the right perspective and the right point of view, as opposed to just okay, I'll try this and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Because look, I. I would have to say, uh, you know, outside of these sort of science-based approaches, um, and I hope I don't want this to come off as rude, but I would say probably the most common approach that I've seen is follow the leader. So what's Adam Scott do? Or, you know, what, what are the top guys doing? What does Ty, everyone always wanted to know what Tiger did. And that was kind of the, maybe that's all we had, but that was kind of always the, the approach is, I know this guy, he's excellent. This is what he does. Um but, you know, how well it applies to any other individual player, we didn't really know. So, you know, we were sort of – we were still guessing essentially. It's an interesting point because those guys being high-performance performers already by just being that type of person, they're already outliers anyway. Hmm. So what works for those type of, that type of person is not going to work for average Joe anyway, I wouldn't have thought because they're already on the extremes of the spectrum to start with because mm. they're already really good. So what, you, what you'd really love to do is you'd rather get, you'd rather get say, I don't know, 30 players who from the age of and, – and, and know what they did between the ages of, say, 14 and 21 where they've gone from a, a good amateur to an excellent tour player. Now, that would be worth collecting and be. aggregating that data – you know, we could do some really good stuff with that. So, um, and that that's the sort of thing that, um, you know, it'd be great to see a lot of the development programs in Australia starting to take that kind of data-led approach. So, you know, that, that's something that we're uh, in discussions with various people about it at, at the moment. Um, and look, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do, but it can be done. It's done in a lot of other sports. And, you know, that's that's where we need to keep pushing, I think. So are you, are you thinking of... After this is published and out there and be, be, has been accepted, are you thinking of commercialising it in any way? Uh, so one of the things I'd like to do is um, build a, a software that houses all of this because ultimately, even even for myself, um, you know, I, I can set up a whole bunch of Excel spreadsheets and talk to each other. I did, I've did. i already built a web-based software which helped me collect all this through the PhD, which I've used commercially as well. But you know, ultimately, we've got to make this possible for anyone who's interested in this approach. Um, so, so you need a web-based platform for that. Um, and the other thing that I'm really, really keen to do is run some education courses that essentially upskill people in understanding what the data is, how to test for it, um, you know, teach them how to do it, basically. So so they're probably two of the main outputs that I'm, that's what I'm sort of moving on to next. And, and gradually publishing some papers from, from here as well. But for me, you know, the reason I did this was not, not to become an academic, although I'm going to be involved in research, I think, from now on. Um, but, you know, ultimately I'm a practitioner and I, wa- I want to do my job better and teach others how to do it better. Well, I think coming at it from a practical perspective as a researcher is a pretty cool thing to do as well. So um, being the person someone else can come up with the ideas and you can actually put them into practice. That's, um, that's pretty cool. So mm. where is your 
your thoughts, Heather, for your research in the future? Where are you going to go? You going to expand on this this area? Or are you looking for something different? No, yeah, there's so much more to do now. Like it's a typical thing of every question you answer raises two more. <laughs> it does it does. So, so what I've what I've managed to do is is create um, these different test batteries uh, for these different different cohorts of, of players. So, so your club golfer would have a slightly different test battery to your elite players, for example. Um, and then what I've done is I've created a bunch of um, a bunch of models, so predictive models that span the continuum. So they're algorithms, you might call them. Um, so we can work out through collecting the test data, we put them into the predictive models and we can work out whether a player is under-trained or under-transferred is the two ways that I look at it, okay? So, so if they, let's just say we're trying to look at the transfer between strength and club head speed, right? That's one of the models actually, is, is physical to club head speed. Um, as we've talked about before, I think we talked about that with the trainees. Yeah. Um, and so we've got the, the the most important physical measures, which I've pulled out of my, my research after collecting 82. It's like, well, we can't use 82 measures, but we pulled out the best, I think it was 10, 10 to 12. And they come from about four or five different physical tests that we run. And you can look at it and go, okay, so the model predicts that Brent is going to have a club head speed of 110, right? But you actually have a club head speed of 115. So we go, hmm, you actually quite well transferred. You're quite well optimized, but you're probably a little bit under-trained. We could increase your capacity by raising those physical tests or improving your physical capacities. If the reverse was true, if the model predicted 110 miles per hour, but you're only putting out 105, we go, actually, he's he's well enough trained. He needs to be coached better, per se. He needs to be optimized with his swing, with his technique. Maybe it's club fitting. Oh, actually, club head speed would not be so much that. It's probably going to be more of a, a, um, a swing issue. So we can look at those things and we can work out, and that can identify the strengths and the weaknesses. So what I'd like to do is take these 12 different models that I've created from the data and actually validate them. So, so with, with enough players, actually run them through that, train them for those weaknesses and see that the transfer actually improves. Because we're always about training transfer. All of us coaches and practitioners, you know, you, you do a lesson with a player, you want it to transfer in some way. Now, you might be just working on increasing their club head speed or their ball speed or their distance on the course or their skill, which have improved, but you really want to see it transfer onto the course, don't you? So exactly. we're all looking for transfer. So that's what we're, that's what we're looking for. So I'd like, to, I'd like to kind of run with a hypothesis that taking this individualized approach with golfers is superior to a general approach. Which would just be a simple answer, wouldn't you think? Look, as a scientist, I need to r remain open to any outcomes, but I'll be super bummed if that doesn't turn out to be the case. <laughs> I'll be honest. Yeah, I think you're pretty safe with that assumption there. So that's um, 
that's yeah. cool. Mate, it sounds awesome that everything's coming along and everything's just about finished, which is which is really cool. Yeah. I've got a question to ask Thanks. you though. When are you going to show your face on the VU podcast, One Track Mind? I haven't seen you on that one yet. Oh, look, Sammy's a hard marker, mate. He, he, he likes the big stars. He likes the big stars from around the globe. So um, maybe if, I'm, if I move overseas, you know, then you get an internet, then I'm an international guest. That might be so, it. Yeah, yeah I might have to head over to New Zealand or, you know, the travel bubble maybe to Singapore. No, look, uh, I, I think I think I was I was running so far behind <laughs> with my PhD, he wouldn't have wanted to um to load me down with anything else. So I've been yeah. I've been tuning into the to Sam's podcast and I haven't Yeah, it's haven't, great. Great guests some and- really cool stuff, some really cool sports science stuff in there. So if you are interested in that sports science stuff, there is yeah, a one good track pod- line. It's excellent. I love it. Good podcast to tune into. Um, speaking of socials, your webpage is still kicking along nicely. Um, I was a bit peed off that people didn't want to f- argue my point about cold uh, exposure <laughs> instead of instead of hot exposure. And you, how dare you pick little, uh, little, little hot holes well, in my, in I my point? I just felt like you sat on the fence. You <laughs> said, I said, would you prefer hot or cold exposure? For golfers for their training slash recovery, and you said hot and cold showers. What am I, yeah. what am I supposed to do with that? But you clarified it nicely, yes. and I went, actually, yeah, I should have picked up on that because I see hot and cold showers as the cold is the the actual part that is useful for the player, as opposed to the hot part. The hot part is the normal shower. Well, the hot bath is that hot baths have been shown to be uh, around about two thirds as effective as a sauna. So a hot bath. That can work well because you can fully immerse yourself and you can really sweat, whereas in a shower it's not. It's probably not hot enough to, to yeah. make a, a difference. So, I just found, especially when when I was coaching in Taiwan, my kids were playing in the heat in Asia, just having that ability to kind of refresh the brain, so to speak, with that, mm. with that, cold, that cold stuff, whether it's an ice bath or whether it's in that, that cold shower, just to – refresh after a round of golf was a good thing as well yeah well you've got that bringing the body core temperature down which is really important um the nervous system particularly the brain needs that 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 you're 100 right especially being out in the sun in the in the humidity but um you know my my one big thing with heat exposure it's really pertinent for victorian golfers in particular or you know in the southern parts of australia if if you're traveling from the winter to say Asia or overseas in the heat um, to get that heat exposure up so that you're not energy energies like sapped when once you get there is, is a big thing look there's a lot of a lot of um, benefits that come from heat training so the AFL clubs that's the almost the big thing now remember it was all about altitude 15 years ago yeah yeah altitude training now the whole point of altitude training is it makes whatever you're doing harder and and that's they've still got these hypoxic rooms and um, altitude rooms that you can actually have, and they just go in there and do basic training on a bike, which all of a sudden becomes difficult training. And so you can get good hard training in without necessarily stressing the connective tissue and the joints. You can do simple movements and make it really hard from a a aerobic point of view. But heat does exactly the same, and you don't have to travel as far in Australia to get really hot environments so um yeah it's sort of a horses for courses i guess all in all i'd probably run with cold exposure being the best being such a powerful recovery tool uh, but from a training perspective obviously heat is probably going to provide 
provide more. Yeah, as well. Um, I've also it. I've also seen you delve into a bit of your the sports sciencey, golf sciencey Facebook groups <laughs> recently as well. Yes, I dipped my toe in the water. A little bit nervous, a bit Scary nervous when you yes. get a, when you get a larger <laughs> audience. But um, but you know, I, I just I, I guess the thing that makes me feel more and more comfortable with that sort of thing is I'm always trying to, as you'd be aware, I'm always tra- it. It's often not my argument or my idea. It's the science speaking. I'm presenting a body of evidence, uh, which I'm not as emotionally connected to either. Because it's not my well. Once it's my studies, I must admit I probably get a little bit more connected. <laughs> but but ultimately, you know, to try and remove because I mean, there's just oh look. I think good conversations are allowed to get a little bit feisty too. I'm okay with that. Um, but uh, from my point of view, the thing I guess it's a, a little bit more unique um, is that I can provide a bit of um, science to whatever I'm trying to bring to the table. And I try and make a habit of doing that because, uh, you know, otherwise it's just another voice and um, I don't tend to want to do that too much. I'll give you some tips. Stick to the golf science C ones as stay out of the golf coaching ones because they a little bit the wild west, mate. A little bit, a little bit rough around the edges, or they've all got their good and bad points. But it Mm. does tend to get a little bit of well, I've done this way forever, so this is right type of stuff as opposed to using science. So stick to the ones where they've got a more science focus, and you should be all right. Maybe I should just uh, drop in there. Throw some bombs, you reckon? Yeah, just well, yes. Carefully crafted bombs. <laughs> there is. Maybe I at, should. No, look, as, it's not that comfortable, is it? When it when it um, gets a bit ugly, it's uh, that's social media. It's just tough like that. Completely it's not, agree. Not enjoyable. There is a, a top hundred golf summit going on at the moment, um, as we speak, and there's been a few social media posts I've seen floating around from some coaches I know they're over there and mm. starting to talk about some good science being presented at that summit also, which is right. good. So they've got guys like Sashos over there doing some stuff and um, mm. some actual actual sports scientists doing some information and some presentations. So it's pretty cool. Well this is this is part of what I what I want to do with the education courses that I'm looking to run is to really upskill as many coaches and practitioners in science, in sports science, the actual mechanics of sports science, what sports science is, the the scientific method itself. Because most of us, I mean, to be honest, I've I've spent a lot of time at university and I always, I've made this distinction in in recent years where I now realise that I was taught by science but not in science, okay, whereas in the PhD and in, in, in the honor stream, learning to be a researcher is being taught science, the scientific techniques and how to um, better understand information, how to find good quality information, you know, so that if five studies were put in front of you, you could rank them in order of quality. You know, there's a hierarchy of evidence and all these sorts of things, which I just think are the, the skills of the framework of critical thinking, which every human being benefits from, but particularly when you have to make decisions on the fly, as we do as practitioners. It's just a great, it's a great toolkit and it's, it's something that I'm really becoming more and more passionate about. Um, and that's, you know, I'll probably create a module that might be just for that, um, you know, sports science, golf science or something of that. Anyway, I'm just um, spoiler alert city here at the moment. But um, that that's one one thing that I think could be great benefit to, to coaches in particular and really practitioners. Cool. 
Yeah, yeah really cool. So the Facebook group name is, again? Golf Performance Science. And there will be a website coming soon, which is where I'm probably going to be housing a lot more of the information um, and, and the courses and all the different tools that, that are going to come out off the back of my own research and, and all the stuff that I've put together. So there is a, a, a website coming, so I won't be just a man with a Facebook page. <laughs> no, definitely not. I we'll promise. Get you out there. We'll get you out there with some with some serious serious online um, stuff coming out there, so really cool. Yep. Thanks for coming in, Scott, and talking to me today. Appreciate it, mate. It's good to catch up again. I haven't seen yeah, you for thanks, a while, bro. so it's good to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, we'll get you back on again really, really soon to do some more. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you.